0: Stories That Matter Studios, I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos, wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under this fearless, multi-Walkley award-winning journo has exposed corruption in almost every realm of society, from unions to rugby league and behind the scenes of the media itself. Kate McClymont is an investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. She was awarded the Gold Walkley for her coverage of the Bulldogs' salary cap wrought saga and in 2017 was inducted into the Media Hall of Fame. Kate's latest book, Dead Man Walking, tells the story of the live and shoddy business deals of Michael McGurk and Ron Medic, while other revelations from her decades-long career led to a five-year jail term for former New South Wales Labor MP Eddie Obeid. And as Kate tells us on this episode of the Journo Project podcast, her unlikely big break into starting her career came from busking in King's Cross. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the streets of your town, the Journo Project.
1: Oh, Nance, my pleasure. Although the streets are slightly empty at the moment. It
0: is extremely strange. Here we are at this beautiful little cafe at Paddington that you found us, But basically because all the other places we were hoping to go won't let us in because of the coronavirus.
1: So it is strange times that we're know, living in. It. it is. It, it, it's, it's strange and uncertain times. And mm. I think, you know, when you look at times like this, I think it's when the media really comes to the fore because people are relying on information on messaging even if the messaging is slightly all over the shop people are Desperate for information and to keep themselves informed about what they should be doing.
0: Well, it is interesting, is because people seem to be saying, "I don't know where to find reliable information." Is this something we can take advantage of as journalists to bring people back to those respected mastheads and a bit more off social media? Look, I
1: think it is, but yeah. at the same time, there are a variety of expert opinions. And for instance, we had the chief medical officer in the morning saying it's okay to shake hands and then by afternoon saying, actually, no, it's not okay to (laughs) shake hands. So I can understand why people are getting Confused and anxious because it is the media's role to get a message out there but we're also reporting messages given from the World Health Organization from other um, chief medical officers in other countries you've got Britain talking about um, we might just do herd immunity our experts here are saying are you crazy so (laughs) you know the media does do its best but at the same time we report what other people are telling us. Does it highlight, I suppose, that
0: lack of trust that seems to have evolved in the last couple of years and how do we get that
1: trust back? Look, I think I think the problem is, is that um, people are getting news and information from sources such as Facebook. I think in times like this it's so important to have a... Quality media organisation. Forget the Facebooks. Forget the the crazy fringe people peddling their ideas. Stick with quality. That's the message to get exactly. through to everybody. Well, and I'll go back now yeah. to. I want to
0: talk to you a bit about where it all began, Kate. Thirty years, you were just saying, but when we just met, so you've been in this industry. Well, actually, at... thirty-five. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, thank and you. So honey. many accolades in that time that I want to cover, but. Would it be true to
1: say you're very much a Sydney girl? This has been a very Sydney kind of focus for you? Well, I actually grew up in Orange, on a farm in Orange, which is in the central west of New South Wales. But I went to Sydney University and I guess it is, look, it is a Sydney story, the things that I do. There's occasionally, you know, there's national implications to things and I've criminals cross the border <laughs> funnily enough funnily enough and you chase them i do <laughs> in fact i got um i got a, a text message from somebody this morning somebody from melbourne saying why do you have this vendetta against me and it was only because he was giving evidence in court having pleaded guilty to pervert the course of justice and he tried to get a suppression order on another piece of evidence and I challenged it. I got a lawyer down there and I said, you know, open justice prevails. It is more important than mere embarrassment. It is more important than your hurt feelings. And we prevailed. It worries me that with the growing you know, financial stress on the media, smaller outlets can't afford to say, actually, I'm going to fight this. I am going to get a lawyer and I'm going to get them to come to court and we're going to do this. And I just think that so many times suppression orders, non-publication orders are going unchallenged because, and, and often it's just not good enough to say it's because we have rights to uphold. Rights to uphold means spending money on it, but I just think it's important that we try to do this where we can. It makes me think of try and think of a word to summarise your career. I think I think of fearless,
0: Kate. <laughs> you've been, certainly been fearless and show uh, many journalists the path to
1: to be fearless in in journalism. But you've also done a lot of joint investigations. And I love mm. doing I love doing um, investigations mm. with other people. Mm. There's nothing quite like coming in and saying guess what guess what I found it's hard to do that to yourself <laughs> <laughs> so um, among the people I've loved working with was Linton Besser who's now the ABC's one of the Europe correspondents he was such a joy to work with and then I worked with um, uh, Joe Pacini and Lorna Knowles and others on the first Me Too investigation and there is something about working with people because you can you can cross check what you're doing you can follow up leads you can divvy up the work but it's good to chat to people like you know what do you think of this like when we were doing these stories I think people often don't understand that almost every story I do and a lot of other people, I see it as a court battle. I say to myself, okay, if I am going to be sued over this, who's gonna to come to court? Who's going to give evidence? If you have a story with no sources, no sources on the record, it's it's really difficult. But last year I did a story on one of Australia's most famous neurosurgeons, Charlie Teo. And I did not have a single source on the record. But when Charlie Teo said, I'm going to sue you, I said, well, look, that's fine. But just to let you know, the 14 neurosurgeons and neurologists I have spoken to have all said, if push comes to shove, they will get in the witness box. So I don't know whether he really did intend to sue, but... It's important for me not just... Like, the journalism is one thing, but with our defamation laws, it is a completely different thing to have to be thinking about... What happens if this goes to court?
0: Has that deteriorated in the time you've been a journalist, that that defamation, it just seems so omnipresent now? It's always in journalists'
1: minds, isn't it, the defamation? It is always always Mm. in journalists' minds. And, look, in the past, people would threaten defamation actions so that you would stop what you were doing. But, as I was saying, only the largest of the media organizations can afford to wage these big defamation battles. A smaller um, publication, say you're a local newspaper and there's corruption in the local council, your resources are small, do you really have the means to fight a defamation battle? Because, you know, they're hundreds of thousands of dollars. God forbid you can lose. I was successfully sued by Labor power broker, Eddie Obeid, for saying he was corrupt. So it it, it happens. And it didn't stop you, Kate. You kept doing those stories. I know, but it's, it's one of those things that I think that was one of the bleakest periods in my life. Um, my colleague, and David's and I, had written a series of stories that we actually won a Gold Walkley for. And it was about it was a financial scandal, but following the money trail led to breaches of the NRL salary cap, and we're talking about major breaches, the which Canterbury Bulldogs. the Canterbury Bulldogs. Bulldogs. Yeah. So, and that mm. resulted in the Bulldogs going from the top of the table losing all their points and people weren't happy but a a side investigation into that was that Eddie Obeid had asked for a million dollars in order to get a a key piece of government land for the council so the the rugby league team and the local council could build their combined sports stadium and council premises it was going to be a big job lot and um, Our story reported that Obeid had asked for the money, it had not been paid, and it wasn't for him personally, it was to go into the coffers of the Labour Party. We had four different sources all saying that that had happened, and we had put that it didn't happen, we put in his denials, but we were still successfully sued by Eddie Obeid and then I felt after that that I could never write a story about Eddie Obeid because it would look like sour grapes it would look like it would just look bad but when no one kept looking at him and more stories come to you you know eventually you just think look I've just I've just got to do it exactly. so <laughs> Because I suppose
0: it does point to that chilling effect, though, that journalists do notice when other journalists, uh, you know, hauled over the coals and put through Mm. things like that, like Chris Masters, for example, and the years of defamation action he had to endure. But you've got to be a journalist with with guts to keep on going and have that big organisation behind you, hopefully.
1: Look, if it hadn't been for the Sydney Morning Herald, Mm. if I hadn't been for working for an organisation like that, I would never have been able to do any of these things and I think you know sometimes people say oh yes but you're well known no I'm not if I rang up and I said it's Kate McClymont you know freelancer or Kate McClymont from the Central Western Daily in Orange it doesn't wash with those pa- the powerful end in town. They think they can fob off those kind of people. But when you actually work for a major organisation, it's the organisation that counts. It's not my name. So I do feel incredibly grateful to have had that support over the years because and I, I just think that's the sad, you know, way of journalism these days well it must have felt good when your book on Eddie O.B. came <laughs> oh look it did but even better um, it's one of those things that I think young journalists should be aware of this that not every story you do is going to be a blockbuster but it's important to build on the smaller stories. Like, smaller stories lead, lead to larger stories, and you've got to keep chipping away at it. And
0: you see those and patterns and evolving. You do see patterns. Yeah.
1: But, look, in in this case with the obeids, and I sort of sometimes felt sorry for them because wherever they were there I would be, hello, I'm here. <laughs> and in fact, um, Moses obed was being sued by the city of Sydney over, of all things, multi function light poles, like flag poles. I mean, not, not terribly interesting. And it was a case about the fact that they'd got the rights to... Uh, manufacture and produce these in the Sydney area, but not elsewhere. So what they'd done was that they were manufacturing them and selling them offshore. And, of course, the intellectual property rights Mm -hmm. were owned by the City of Sydney Council. So they lost their case, and they were ordered to pay some $12 million in damages. It's a fair bit. Look, it is a fair bit. (laughs) And you know what? If they had... One, if they hadn't done it in the first place, two... If they'd paid the money when they were ordered to, none of what came later would have happened. But the fact was, Moses Obeid got in the witness box, and he had to lie about something, because he said, "I can't pay that money. You know, I don't. I don't have any money. I earn, I think it was eighty thousand dollars a year. So." The city of sydney had hired forensic accountants and found that his wife who didn't work they both drived you know top of the range land rovers they had a nanny they traveled overseas they'd bought a house for four million dollars and i think as the judge at the time said they epitomized william thackeray's vanity fair how to live well on nothing a year. <laughs> and the thing so there was, so there was he in the witness box saying to himself, okay, what do I lie about? Do I lie about the fact that I do have money or that I lied to the bank when I told them, I've got heaps of money, that's why you should give me a loan for my $4 million house. Anyway, so all these documents were produced. And in those documents were... A myriad of Obeid family trusts and it was like the key to the door was open. The key to the Obeid's financial chicanery was open and it eventually led the way to uh, Eddie obed uh, going to jail. And mm. as we speak he's got a second trial at the moment and this is about how he and his family made $30 million with the prospect of another $30 million by getting his colleague, the mining minister, to grant an exploration coal licence over his property.
0: So this is still going it is still after all these years.
1: Okay. And look, we can talk about it at the moment because there isn't a jury, there's a judge alone trial. Right. Which means that judges are beyond being influenced by mere journalists otherwise we wouldn't be able to speak about this at all for fear of prejudicing a jury. Mm. It's just incredible I just
0: I'm interested Kate in what keeps you motivated through all these you've received death threats there's been a real cost to the work that you've done does it really go back to your
1: reasons for being a journalist or what keeps you going? I just think I'm an optimist and I think I, I think when I get threats I just think look people just want you to stop what you're doing they don't actually really want to kill you. I mean that's I mean that's what I say to myself <laughs> look I think far more pernicious than the actual threats are the defamation threats. I think last year alone I would have spent 20% of my working year with lawyers. You know, fending off defamation actions. Oh, t- like oh, and t- I think uh, people don't realise you mm. have to produce every email, every correspondence, every note you ever took. You have to do a complete chronology of who you said to what, and uh, it's. And then the sub-editors, the editors, like everyone gets, you know, called in. It's just. Oh. It must affect the way you work because you'd be constantly conscious
0: of it like you're saying of having your records You know in case yes. you need to go back to them and yes
1: Exactly, so does your yes. desk have all those big piles of paper? Yes. Like yes. <laughs> in fact when we moved when we moved office last year people were laughing because people had one container And I think I had 36 containers and I keep I keep everything in alphabetical order like I do keep mm. and it's funny how you go back Like the same criminals or the same criminal groups keep popping up. It might take 10 years, 20 years, but somebody you wrote about back then will appear as the dodgy accountant for something that's happening now. It's, you know, they don't change. People don't change. They don't learn their lessons. (laughs) I imagine you at King's Cross at that little busking
0: station, (laughs) Kate. We must have got yourself all steeled up ready for a decades-long career well, in journalism I'm sure tells us about that <laughs> I know I'm sure
1: that the only reason I actually got a cadetship at the Herald it <laughs> wasn't that you know I had an honors degree in English literature or I'd worked at a radio program at a local radio station it was when I was a uni student because I have no no talent to sing or dance or to entertain but i can talk (laughs) so i had a busking booth that was questions answered 40 cents arguments 50 cents and verbal abuse one (laughs) dollar So, and I used to make about $17 an hour, which was, you know, pretty good back then. And, and I can only imagine
0: the type of characters that came up to you at King's Cross, Kate, getting you ready for this career that you've had. Oh,
1: well, the funny thing was occasionally prostitutes would come up and say, look, this is actually our corner and you're ruining our trade. I remember on one occasion saying, well, look, if you want to argue about it, you'll have to give me 50 cents. So they did. <laughs> so we had an argument and then, you know, I just found, you know, you know, one of the most disturbing things was that young men would pay a dollar to have their girlfriends abused, and you would abuse them for having such appalling taste in having a boyfriend who would do that. Oh, now that's the sweetest thing, oh, isn't it? I know. <laughs> but look, and, and it was funny because people would ask you all sorts of questions like, um, Who's going to win the fifth at Port Kembla on <laughs> Saturday? <laughs> And the thing is, um, you just would make up an answer. And if they didn't like it, I'd say, well, if you want to argue about it, pay a dollar. <laughs> so it was it was win-win. <laughs> and
0: in journalism, so much of it is if you
1: don't ask, you don't find out. It's, but, it is yeah. those
0: endless kind of questions, isn't it? And having the courage to follow
1: them. I know, although I still find that is the... that I like least about the job is I hate it no but I hate it when I've got to ring you up and say Nance Nance (laughs) and it's got to the stage now where I ring people up and I say oh it's Kate McClymont from the Herald here and I can just hear (laughs) and often if I ring people up to ask for help I have to say really quickly it's Kate McClymont from the Herald here I'm hoping to get your help (laughs) just then you can hear them go oh (laughs) not investigating i know i know it is quite tricky saying did you steal the money were you corrupt did you those kind of things and you know it's interesting when you do investigations as well you have to strategize i've had things where i know if i ring you up you are going to tip my next person off so i have to ring you up i have to have the number ready to go so i can dial before you dial them to tell them yes so a bit of
0: strategy oh yes you have
1: to and and look not look sometimes you know you do strategize about talking to people Mm. um i'll talk to you last and you second last Mm. but sometimes even your best intention doesn't work out and somebody has already been tipped off that you're doing the story i mean what you worry about is that they'll destroy the documents or threaten other people not to talk etc
0: but it's interesting that you you never find that easy okay all these years
1: oh well look who Mm. wants to put unpleasant things Mm. to people really oh actually no i do i do
0: it's the expose that's
1: the thrill of the chase perhaps but even Mm. look even the expose like the night before Mm. a major story is about to come out i only ever feel sick i feel anxious i know and you think have i done everything have i asked everything have i (laughs) yes it's sort of you do feel like really anxious Mm. you know look it is stressful
0: because so often it's the undoing of a story too. It's just the minor, most yeah. minor error in some ways. But saying one person who has the same name as yeah. someone else and well, oh, I had, it's um, nightmare.
1: Well, our Eddie Obeed book got pulped through a mistake of mine, where I had the I had the right name, wrong person. Totally oh. my totally my mistake. The person's name surname was Brown. So, look, we are human and we make mistakes. And I would be the last person to ever suggest I was perfect at all. Like, you you know, of course you're going to make mistakes. But you've got to keep going. Yeah. And you have to apologise. Mm. And you have to say, totally, yep, got that wrong. I'm terribly sorry.
0: On that note, I actually want to congratulate you for, uh, for your achievements. Seven Walkleys. Is that right now? <laughs> yeah. And also recognition recently in the Australian Media Hall of Fame. You've just done so many stories that have really redefined Australian politics. They've had such massive implications. Can you tell us a bit about your latest book that's come out now, too? Because that goes back quite a few years. Oh, yes. My my
1: latest book is called um, Dead Man Walking, and it had its genesis back in 2009, where I was tipped off about this. this man who might have firebombed a house in the richest street in the entire nation. And in fact, Wolseley Road, Point Piper is the 10th wealthiest strip of real estate in the entire world. So to have a house firebombed, I thought, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, uh, I tried to get on to the alleged perpetrator who'd been charged with it. And his name was Michael McGurk. And he was away skiing. So... I couldn't put the questions to him, but we ran the story because we had the court documents, etc. Anyway, I met up with him when he came back and he started saying to me, he said, you know, you're looking at the wrong person. You have to look at Ron Medich. And then, you know, he rang me up on one occasion and said, you don't understand. There is a hit out on me. Ron Medich is going to have me killed. And I must admit, I, you know, I thought, oh, you know, these people, honestly, they'll say anything to get you to do a story. And then you can imagine how I felt when 10 days later mm. he was shot dead in front of his nine-year-old son outside his home. And five days after his murder, a death threat arrived at my house, yeah. basically telling me to stop what I was doing. But the thing is, is that, those kind of things only make you go twice as hard because you think people deserve to know like the public has a right to know these things and we can't if if we turn away then you know justice isn't being done really anyway so it was after 9 years and ron medich finally went to jail in 2018 And it was one of those dreadful things that um, I just think it showed what money could buy you. When you're rich, you can buy the best lawyers, you can challenge absolutely everything. It went all the way to the high court, you know, about one piece of evidence. Um, But in the end, um, you know, Ron Medich is now... I think I think he got a um, thirty nine year sentence and as he's in his seventies that's effectively a life sentence.
0: So the truth came out in the end and that's what it you, did. What <laughs> you hope for as a journalist, I suppose. Well exactly. Exactly. Way. I just wanna ask you about the press freedom implications at the moment too, Kate. They're so topical. I mean, what did you think when you heard about those raids from on from the AFP on ABC and News Limited journalists
1: last year and the ongoing implications of that, too? I was, in fact, on one level, really pleased that they happened because I just think the idiocy of raiding a News Limited journalist one day and the ABC the next threw together two of the most powerful media organisations in the country... And I think it just, for the first time, actually showed members of the public these dreadful laws that, you know, whistleblowers can go to jail, journalists can go to jail. And what was the ABC ones about? It was about potential war crimes in Afghanistan. Now, if we don't have the right to know that, well, I don't know, and Annika Smethurst as well, The fact that these warrants can be given by a magistrate in Queanbeyan, which is a town just outside of Canberra, and that none of the organisations had a right to argue about the issuing of the warrant. Now, as it's turned out, the courts have upheld the warrants. And in some ways, you have to think that, you know, the Australian Federal Police are acting on what the current legislation is so it is up to our politicians to make sure the rights of both the public and the press are protected and you know I just think that surely some good has got to come of this
0: do you think so do you think the public has realized the implications yet or do, do we need to get better at communicating that?
1: look I think unfortunately for the media we are not as a profession held in great respect by members of the public. So in some ways, I think, you know, some areas of the public just think it's it's journalists, you know, bleating and, and... And also they look at trashy magazines that make things up on a regular basis. And I think we often all get lumped into the one boat. And it's... I just think it's that thing there is, you know, the... the quality media and the, the not so the, the bottom end of the market but we as a profession have to do more to gain the trust of members of the public, I think that is incumbent upon us as well we have to behave better in, in order to earn the trust.
0: And hopefully this little podcast is a bit of that, oh, celebrating Great that Australian case. Journalists. That's <laughs> part of it, Kate. But yes, it is. It's interesting, isn't it, that that trust and responsibility is really becoming more of a worldwide issue, I think, and becoming quite sharp in focus as this coronavirus <laughs> rolls out as well and the implications of that. These are the issues that we need to grapple with as journalists, don't we? And, and increasing that trust again, not just in Australia, but further afield.
1: Well, I think... President Donald Trump's continual assault on the Wall Street Journal, CNN, the New York Times, and I think just earlier this month, he actually is suing those three organisations for libel over their coverage in 2019 of the Mueller report and, and saying that Donald Trump's election campaign was aided by the Russians. But to continually attack news organisations is only causing more distrust in the media. And when you've got the president of the free world doing this, it's just, I think, had a terrible effect. And I think it's splintering society. Society is becoming so polarised... I think it's really worrying times, and I, I just think at the moment the uncertainty about COVID-19 oh. is, I don't know, it's... It, you don't know what the social and financial ramifications are going to be but I just think it's major and very uncertain times
0: well perhaps to to finish Kate I wonder if you could give us a a bit of an insight into you've told us about a few of your stories but what makes your antenna go off what is it for you as a journalist that makes you think oh this this could be leading to one of those big exposés
1: Any number of things. And in fact, one of my stories that I did a couple of years ago was exposing the head of the Health Services Union and the federal president of the ALP, Michael Williamson. He'd in fact stolen about $20 million from his union. Anyway, a member of the public rang me up and said, forget looking at Craig Thompson. And Craig Thompson was in the news at the time for putting prostitutes on his health services union credit card the
0: labor minister yes yeah. that so mm. then he'd
1: become a labor minister so mm. forget looking at federal mp craig thompson you have to look at michael williamson and to my shame i said i've never heard of him who is he he's oh he's the head of the health services union and he said he is a parent he and his wife are parents at our child's school they've got five children in private schools and i'm thinking wow <laughs> wow <laughs> that they, they drive they both drive top of the range mercedes benz they travel first class and most annoying they keep outbidding us at the school charity auction so that was what had caused this person to ring me up, was the fact that Michael Williamson was outbidding them at the school charity auction. And
0: I suppose it shows you can't dismiss no, any anyway, of these but, funny but, little, the, you know, chips as The well. funny thing was
1: <laughs> it took about half a day to realise that guy was completely right. Wow. So one of the first things that you do is I did secure the corporate affairs records of the Health Services Union, and I did Michael Williamson's own property records, what he was a director of. And funnily enough, there was a company of which he was a director, was getting a million dollars a year to provide computer and IT services to the union. There's called, you know, third-party disclosures. And you have to, as a director, you have to notify that you have an interest in that contract. And then by the afternoon, I'd found that he'd got the union architects to do renovations on his house, to build him a holiday house. And if you know, like, when you're a, a union official, you are meant to have... The equivalent salary of your highest union member. Okay. So the highest union member was on 120,000. So there was no way in the world. For one, private school fees are thirty thousand dollars. Mm. So if he's got five of them, you could there is it just didn't add up. Anyway, eventually he went to jail for five years. Mm. So, but it it doesn't take a lot to think. Actually, right, okay, yeah, but I think one of my problems now is that I would get at least ten a day, wow. uh, and and you know I got one last week from Spain saying, "Could I please look into a romance fraud that had happened to this person?" I think I can't even keep on top of New South Wales, <laughs> let alone and and a lot of them are That's just tough. not. Just I know, and it's terrible mm. saying. And I ran into someone the other night. Um, I said, oh, I think I received an email from you. And he said, yes, you told me you couldn't look at my story. Like, and he said it really rudely. Mm. And I said, look, I'm so sorry, but we just can't. Mm. Like, there's so much. And I, I really think the decline of local newspapers, the amount of corruption in local politics is extraordinary. That's where the real corruption is. You know, giving the, the, the mayor a... Um, discount car and you get another five floors or you get spot rezoning or you get you know the council car park gets given to you all those things are just not being covered adequately enough
0: i mean that's talk about press freedom i think people forget the implications on a regional level because how important is that that these stories are not being reported because there aren't people on the ground anymore no
1: exactly And I look at what's happening to Paul Pizzali, the former Ipswich mayor, and I think, oh, that is just the tip of the iceberg as to what must have been going on.
0: Well, we can only hope that perhaps there'll be a bit more investment in regional journalism again to to bring those numbers back
1: up because it's pretty woeful at the moment. Oh, look, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, the other thing that we haven't mentioned is um, the demise of AAP. I just think... People probably don't realise how much of not just the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian, the Daily Telegraph, the Courier Mail is filled by AAP. And AAP just provides the most incredible service photographs, uh, press conferences. They were there every single day for the Royal Commissions when other journalists had to go off and do things. There was AAP providing coverage so I just think it's a huge loss.
0: Has it changed anything yet? I mean the the official closure is until June. June,
1: The official Mm. closure is in June Mm. but it will and also Mm. those small papers who can't have a correspondent in Canberra AAP had a whole raft of correspondents supplying all the regional papers with copy for their papers like I think most of the regional papers consist of AAP, you know, court reports, political reports, sports reports. It's going to have a chilling effect on uh, journalism, you know, in general, and people's ability to know what's going on. I wonder if something will fill that hole, Case. I don't I think. I can't see so. it for the moment. Well, mm. and I think that you know, the major subscribers, such as um, you know, News and our organisation are they really going to spend that money on providing new journalists? More journalists? I I doubt it. (laughs) I mean, I could hope so. They've said that they will. Mm. But it's a huge hole to fill. And, OK, even if we did that, that doesn't mean that that regionals are going to be able to use the copy. You're
0: (laughs) still an optimist at the end of all this, Kate? Is there hope for our media? (laughs) No,
1: look, there is, because I I think people have realised the importance of investigative journalism of quality political coverage and I think that they realize that we are acting on behalf of the public into holding people into power account like we're doing it for our readers our listeners our viewers you know we're doing a job on their behalf so and I hope they appreciate it (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Kate, for joining us and
0: congratulations on your career and the ongoing investigations that oh, you are doing. Thank you so <laughs> much, Nat, and it's been a delight to talk to you. That was renowned investigative journalist and multi-award winner Kate McClymont speaking to me from a Paddington cafe in Sydney for this episode of Streets of Your Town, the Journo Project podcast.